0: We turn in God's Word this evening to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to pick it up at verse 38. Rereading what we covered last Lord's Day evening, but then into the new section of Mark. Uh, this is kind of an interesting section because this is one of the longer quotes of Jesus In the book of Mark, Uh, in case you haven't noticed, the the book of Mark is filled with a lot of action. There's a lot going on, and the speeches or the talks are very short. Here, however, there is a much longer uh, episode in which Jesus is teaching, and so uh, we do well to pay attention to it this evening. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. We thank you for the Scripture that you give us. We ask that will be with Pastor Bob as he explains this portion of Scripture to us. Lord Jesus. Uh, tells us the seriousness of the sin. We thank you for the grace that you offer us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And we do thank you, Lord, for grace. Um, Mark didn't call and say, what song should I pick uh, beforehand? But it could not have worked out more beautifully for this message. Because as we deal with this, this, this is hard stuff. This is not easy stuff for us to to think about, to comprehend, to deal with in life. But we have to remember that this is a warning that Jesus is giving to even us as believers. But we have as well the wonderful grace of Jesus that covers all of our sin. So if that doesn't get emphasized enough, hopefully we have emphasized it enough In song this evening as well but really to understand what's happening here as it begins it's kind of interesting that that verse 42 begins with again whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me and as I went back over chapter 9 it's kind of interesting how little ones how children have played such an important role in this chapter Remember, they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there is this boy who is having seizures and the disciples cannot cast it out. And you have this father pleading for his child, this this father who wants to do anything he can for his child to be healed, for his child to be cured. He even calls out from the crowd when Jesus didn't even address him. So desperate is he for the healing of his child. And then we have Jesus' compassion and tenderness reaching out to this child and healing him. We have the disciples who are walking along, acting like children. Who is the greatest? Who's the best? Who's the top? Who's the most important? And then we have Jesus To settle that argument, what does he do? Verse 36, he took a child and put him in his midst. And then we have Jesus teaching, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then we have John following it up, saying, hey, we saw a guy doing something in your name, and notice how Jesus ends this. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Don't break, don't stop, keep reading. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. You see, the child is still there. That's what I found interesting. That the child that he had taken... To teach the example to the disciples about servanthood is still there. That the example of this child that he has embraced is perhaps still sitting on Jesus' lap through this whole discussion. There he sits. And Jesus issues the warning. Don't be the cause of having one of these little ones to fall. However, we understand that Jesus isn't just talking about children. Oh, he's talking about children. We can't miss that. Of course children are included in this. But the little ones that he is referring to are his. Those who are called by his name. Those who we read in verse 41 belong to Christ. They're all his little ones. They all belong to him. They are all his children. And so no matter who we are, it's it's not a chronological age when Jesus uses the expression little ones. He's saying those of you who are my children, especially those of you who are tender in faith. Those of you whose faith has not yet been fully developed. Those of you whose faith is not yet full-blown. Those of you who, like children, are still growing in wisdom and knowledge and stature. Those of you whose faith is still expanding. Well, of course that's all of us. But I think Jesus is focused here upon those who, who might be new to the faith. Those who who might have just come to Christ or have just heard about Christ. Those who 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 are really in the childlike stages of Christian development. Here comes Jesus' warning. Don't be the cause. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin How could we do that? How could someone cause a little one to sin? Well, it could be by causing them to deny Jesus Christ, his person, his work. It could be that Jesus is looking forward in the life of the church, knowing, as we've learned in uh, Second Peter, the, the, the church soon became, uh, I was going to say filled, but inhabited by various false teachers of Peter's day. We know there are the Judaizers. We know there are the Gnostics. And, and that kind of thing continues till today. You have a note in your bulletin about the American gospel uh, being shown at Harvest Church uh, this coming Friday from what I've heard, an excellent presentation as to how the false teachers in this world today still seek to draw away from Christ. He's warning of that. Don't be the cause of someone turning away from me. Don't be the cause of someone who is, who is just coming to, to understand Jesus to be someone who is taken away entrapped ensnared in fact that's what the literal meaning of this idea okay of cause one to sin means it means to actually be a bent stick you say what's that got to do with it well if you think about a trap or a snare Okay, then maybe you remember you were a little kid and you, you know, took some carrots and threw them in the end, and then you took some box and you set it up and you took a little stick, okay, and you set it down. Okay. You didn't put it under a big, strong, firm log. What you did is you took a tender little stick that that was already bent, that only took a little bit to spring it, and then the trap comes down. That's the actual word that's used here to be the bent stick. Don't be the bent stick. Don't be the one that entraps and ensnares. But of course, that's not only doctrinally in the denial of Christ, that's in terms of lifestyle as well. Teaching one odd, uh, you know, if you get drunk now and then, it really doesn't matter. Lying, that's okay. Sexual fornication, there's no problem with that. Murder, hatred, bigotry. You now, You really don't have to do what Pastor Bob's been saying. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And women, you don't really need to submit as the church to Christ. None of that stuff. Just live your own life. It's okay. You can be a Christian without being holy. It's all right. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. Whoever acts as the bent stick. That entraps and ensnares a child, somebody new to the faith, somebody young to the reformed faith, perhaps. It should put before them something that just, boom, snaps the trap. And there they are. Don't be that bent stick. That's the warning. Why is that a warning? Because look what he compares. He goes on and says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, first of all, Jesus is not using some hyperbole here. He's not kind of, what what kind of situation can I invent here that would really grab hold of my disciples? This was a reality. This is something the Romans did. The Romans would take oftentimes the zealots, those who were the insurrectionists, and to teach them, well, not to teach them, to punish them, but to teach their followers a lesson, would take them to the Sea of Galilee, tie a large millstone around their neck, throw them off the boat. And then everybody sits there and watches the guy drown. This was a reality. This was something they saw. This was something they probably had witnessed in their lifetime. And notice who he's saying this to. This is to the disciples who have been what? Fishermen. What do you suppose a fisherman's greatest fear was out on the Sea of Galilee? We know, don't we? Because as soon as that storm comes up, what are they doing? Lord, we're going to die. We're going to die. What do they mean by dying? They're going to get thrown off the boat. They're going to go down under the water. Their lungs are going to fill. They're going to flail and flail and flail. And they're in the darkness and the emptiness of the sea. They shall die. And their body's going to sit there and sit there and sit there. And it's going to rot away. Now it's sort of like any occupation. When you're involved in an occupation, you know the hazards of that occupation better than anyone else. You know what can go wrong. You know the problems. You know how you can be walking on that steel beam and how quickly a slip can happen and there you go. You know how working with that electrical fuse and that high voltage, you know how quickly you could just turn and your screwdriver and your belt may touch. You know the danger of the work. You know the danger of the skill saw. You know the problems involved. Fishermen understand the problem. We may drown here. That's a horrific death, isn't it? See, there is a reality to these words. The heavy, donkey-drawn millstone. The crusher. That's maybe what we'd call it. Okay? We'd call it the crusher stone. It's the stone that puts the weight upon the grain as it sits on the bottom stone. And that crusher stone is the one that grinds that grain, the heavy one. It would be better. That crusher stone, just to have a picture in your mind, looks like a donut got a big hole in the middle so the whole idea of having it tied around your neck you can see the rope can't you you can see the rope tied around this big millstone and then tied around your neck and then you're thrown into the sea and there you go whoosh, flying to the bottom of that sea the reality of it but notice what Jesus said it would be better That that is a much better ending than it would be if you would lead one astray. If in something you teach, in something you preach, in some way you live, in some way of giving uh, an okay to sin that leads someone to commit sin, would be better the millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown to the depths of the sea that's a warning but the warning you see isn't only out there the warning is also here for us cuz notice how Jesus picks it up now verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin cut it off right feet causes foot causes you to sin cut it off if your eye causes you to sin Tear it out. Here is the action that Jesus calls for. He's dealing with the the need to be radical in our dealing with sin. It's not physical. Jesus is not calling anyone to cut off their hand. Jesus is not calling for anyone to take a machete and cut off your foot. Let me be clear. Some in the church, in the early church, actually thought that's what Jesus meant. wasn't until the Council of Nicaea that the practice of maiming oneself because of sin committed was put to an end. No. That's a misunderstanding of the text. Jesus doesn't want us to go around with only one hand because we committed theft with that hand. He doesn't want us to pluck out our eye because we looked at a woman lustfully. He doesn't want us to cut off one of our feet so we don't go somewhere to some locality that we shouldn't be going to. Because you know what? You can pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your, other, your foot. You can still sin. You still commit the same sin. See, it's not the physical, it is the spiritual. Colossians 3, 5. Just keep your finger here a minute and go with me. Colossians 3, verse 5. This is what Jesus means. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in that way. But the idea is you put it to death. Uh, our technical term that we use is the term mortification, to mortify, to put to death. We, ha- we have a guy that takes care of people when they're dead. We, we call them morticians. They deal with the dead. You go to a mortuary, the place of death. Right? So the the idea of mortification is the idea of spiritually putting to death sin. That which I do with my hand, that where I go with my feet, that which I see with my eyes. If that causes me to sin, I have to mortify the sin. I have to put the sin to death. So let me give you an example. What kind of doctor, what kind of surgeon do you think you'd have? If you go to the doctor and you say, Doc, I don't know, I've been having some problems lately. I've coughing up an awful lot of blood. I cough and blood just comes. I think there's something wrong with me. The doc says, I think there is too. We better take a look at this. So they do a little scope. They take all sorts of pictures. And the doc comes back and he says, Bob, you got a mammoth, mammoth tumor all up and down your esophagus. Wow, what are you going to do, doc? Well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do surgery. And what are you going to do when you do the surgery? I'm just going to take a little sliver of that tumor. And I say, is that going to help? Well, it can't hurt. Well, doesn't that leave the tumor there to still grow? and be? Yeah. Well, why are you only taking a little sliver? Well, you know, you've probably grown fond of your tumor by now. It's going to be hard cutting the whole thing out. It's going to be difficult. I'm just going to cut out just a little sliver. I might have to come back in a month or two and maybe I'll cut out another slice. But doc, isn't it possible I could be dead before that? Oh yeah, that's fairly well possible. See, this is the way we often deal with sin. Right? We deal with sin like the doctor wants to deal with my tumor up and down my esophagus. Take out a little bit of it. Yeah, I'm committing this sin, but I'm I'm just going to take out just a little bit of it. And then I can feel good that I did something about my sin, but in reality, it's still there. What Jesus is calling for here is a radical removal, a cutting off, a cutting out. Of the sin in our lives. There are no halfway measures with sin. We all love them. We all take them. We all try to skirt the issue. We all try to get around it. But Christ is coming before us tonight and saying, that's not the way you deal with it. You've got to cut it out. Stop it. Kill it destroy it. of course we know we need the Holy Spirit's help okay we we know of our own weakness prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love so what do we do here's my heart oh take and seal it fervently praying that the Holy Spirit would come into our hearts and into our lives to help us kill off the sin that's what he's saying not physically spiritually putting our sin to death because here's the reality that Jesus teaches if we don't deal with sin we go to hell we have to deal with our sin Before I get to the go to hell part, you you might say, well, how do you deal with the sin? You bring it to Christ. That's where it starts. I'm not going to do my own surgery. I need to turn it over to Christ. I need to go back to Christ. Embrace Christ. Love Christ. Commit to Christ. First of all, Then stop going wherever is leading me to sin. Stop doing what's ever causing me to sin. Stop watching or seeing whatever it is that's causing me to sin. But I go to Christ first. Who's going to tell me, Bob, stop. Don't go there anymore. Don't do that anymore. Don't look at that anymore. Because if I don't take my sin to Christ, there is only one alternative. Hell. Notice he emphasizes it three times in each one of these. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to to be thrown into hell. Notice, these are my choices. I got no third option here. I either go to Christ and mortify sin or I go to hell. These are my options. These are your options. This is what Jesus is teaching us. It is better to do the radical mortification of our sin than to go to hell. I want you to note three things about that as we look at that third point the reality that Jesus teaches. First of all, there is the Word. The word that is used here is the word Gehenna, shortened version of Gehinnom, which is shortened as well from Gebenhenom, the son of the valley. This word Gehenna, meaning valley of the sun then, is located just south of Jerusalem, it is the place where two kings, a king by the name of Ahaz and a king by the name of Manasseh, engaged in the sacrifice of their children on an altar. Offering them to the god Moloch as sacrifices. And that wasn't some commitment ceremony. That wasn't some pledge. That was death. They literally took their children and put them upon an altar and burned them for the god Moloch. Those of you in Thursday morning Bible study think we're pretty deep in it when we're with Ahab. Wait till we get to these two guys. Prophet Jeremiah pronounced a curse upon this place. Josiah, good king Josiah, we are told said that this place should never be occupied. During the intertestamentary time, the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, the Valley of Hinnom became known as the garbage dump. This is where people brought their garbage. It was such an accursed place because of what Ahaz and Manasseh had done That they thought it was fitting, we'll just take our garbage there. And that garbage would then be lit on fire and it would burn and it would smolder. And of course there's lots of rotting flesh, there's lots of rotting stuff there, and there's a lot of maggots, worms there as well. That's what Gehenna is. When Jesus says, it is better to enter life maimed than to be thrown into the garbage pit of Gehenna. This is what the disciples are seeing. This this is what's on their minds. Yeah, it'd be a whole lot better to go through life with one hand than it would be to end up in that garbage pit where it's burning all the time and those maggots are at work. That that's where I would spend eternity? But you see, in the New Testament and in the Gospels, This idea of Gehenna now becomes the idea of permanent punishment, of everlasting destruction. And like those who believe that simply at the end of life unbelievers are annihilated, Jesus is teaching us something far different. He's teaching us about the fact that there is unquestionable fire, fire that never ends, fire that continues on over and over and over again. Interestingly, that the word for unquenchable is the word asbestos. It's interesting because you almost think that the guy who invented asbestos was looking at it in terms of fire will never destroy this. There's almost a little bit of rebellious thought in the naming it. okay? Because what he tried to invent was something that wasn't able to be destroyed and he certainly left us with an interesting legacy from it hasn't he unquenchable fire there are actually two words used in the scriptures to to talk about hell the one is this word Gehenna which which means the a place of eternal damnation the a place of eternal destruction But there is also the word Hades. Hades is the word that is used to describe where souls go who are not believers in Jesus Christ at death. So Gehenna is the place of eternal punishment of both body and soul after the resurrection, after the return of Christ then those who are unbelievers are assigned the place of gehenna those who die prior, who die before the resurrection who are believers in Jesus Christ the word that is described there for them is hades however in the new testament hades and hell become synonymous in other words, those who die before the resurrection and their soul is in Hades are already beginning to experience Gehenna. At the time of the resurrection, when their body joins that soul, then it becomes the place of unquenchable fire to its fullest extent, because now it's not just soul, it is also body. And notice the two things that Jesus tells us. There is fire there. Fire. A constant burning. An ongoing, everlasting destruction. It never ends. Burning, 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 burning. That that resurrected body will sense for all of eternity the torment of flame. But it will also endure the internal torment of the worm working within the interior, gnawing away. So there is the exterior punishment of the fire. There is the interior punishment of the worm. Meaning, and this is Jesus' point, you can't escape. There will be no comfort, there will be no blessing, there will be no grace. What are you going to do with sin? Do you take it to Christ? We were at the table this morning. We're reminded at that table. That he gave himself on that cross that he shed his blood so that every sin, every sin Every sin. Now we can perform the rite. We can perform the ritual. But is it by faith? Because when we come to Christ by faith, Christ turns to us and he says, now deal with that sin. Mortify. Put to death sin of your life and we say, oh that's gonna be so hard that's gonna be so difficult and Christ looks at us and he says, would you rather go to hell would you rather have that be the punishment for your sin or do you want me to take it on you want me to take on your sin or do you want to pay for it for all of eternity I'll take it on. But as he told the woman caught in adultery, now go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being honest with us. Thank you for being real with us. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for for dealing with our sin in and through Jesus Christ. Thank you that even now as perhaps we're sitting here thinking about perhaps some sin that has wormed its way into our hearts and into our lives, that we know the victor over that sin. We know the one who paid the penalty for that sin, but who is also victorious over it. And as we come to him, He will never turn us away. As we confess that sin, He will forgive us. And He will arm us with His Spirit so that we, with the sword of the Word of God, may go forth to deal with our own individual sins in our own hearts, in our own lives. Father, thank You for the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the eternal hope of glory we have. Thank you that the hell that is spoken of in this passage will never be faced, never be faced, never endured by one who puts their faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen.